Welcome to my den. What role do video games and hunting play in a child's relationship with violence? Are you attending in-person hiring events? Have you considered the health benefits of being vegan? And what is your role in helping with your community's food insecurity? These are just a few of the questions we dissect on today's show with my guest, Tina Weaver. Tina was the former executive director of the YMCA in Kansas City. And as someone who for pretty much her entire career has worked with children and youth, I found her perspective fascinating on how being an organization that is so involved with her community can relate with businesses who come from a very different perspective. Now we talk about a bunch of topics from all underneath the sun, even to the point of, at the end of the conversation, discussing how in-person hiring events are so crucial and effective in recruiting native digital staff today. As we go through this conversation, I want to ask you to listen with an open mind to what Tina has to say, because essentially what we're discovering as we walk through this jungle gym of dialogue today is that different perspectives, including where Tina and I may differ on our perspectives, always adds value to any conversation. And this is the type of authentic dialogue that I am passionate about having on this show. Tina is now, after leaving her position at the YMCA just a few months ago, she's now the CEO and founder of Vespa Equity Services, where she helps to advance the work um, of equity in the workplace through engaging conversations and staff training and development workshops to help bring the concept of equity to a more tangible level with staff in her community and the organizations she works with. Uh, You can check out Tina at her website, which is VespaEquity.com. I'll include all the links to how you can connect with her in the show notes. We're about to dive deep into these topics of conversation. Again, I encourage you to listen with an open mind, and here we go. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where I, a Gen Zer, dissect collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or one that's paid to pester you like a fly in your ear, you won't survive. Let's change that today. All right, before we dive in, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Overture Consulting. If you're a leader or business owner in a mid-sized company and you want to improve retention of employees under age 30, be sure to sign up for our free masterclass held on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, where we give you tactical strategies to make you a top native digital employer. And you can register for that at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit. And now... Hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Tina Weaver. Hi, Tina. It is so good to see you for the second time here in the last few months. How have you been? Yeah, I'm doing great, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me today. Really excited about the conversation ahead and uh, welcoming this opportunity. So thank you. Yes. I mean, you've gone through so much change, it seems like, in the past three months. And even mm-hmm. I see the, the Thomas the, the truck or the Tom, Thomas the tank. It's been so long behind you here in the background. What, yeah. What's up with that? Yeah. So um, we're, we are part of that movement of having a pandemic baby. So my wife and I uh, welcomed our, our uh, daughter, our gender uh, assigned daughter. Um, at, she's 16 months. Her name is Quinn and she rides Thomas the train quite often every day. That's what you see behind <laughs> us. <laughs> That's amazing. And I don't know if I told you this, Tina, but I have six younger siblings. So, and out of like everybody, there's a lot of, a lot of girls and there, it's amazing to me when I look at all of my siblings, how different everyone's interests are. Like my, uh, my 13 year old sister picked up this interest when she was 
eight or nine, I want to say, in insects. She just mm-hmm. loves insects. And, you know, obviously, I don't want to be that sister who says, you know, you need to go into XYZ field. But it's it's just really, really interesting to see, like, all the different nuanced interest, even from like 16 months old, like you said. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we have a nine-year-old as well. His name is Kellen and he, he's thriving, but his interest level and then uh, Quinn's interest levels, but also allowing them to really just steer their own ships right now. Um, my wife and I were athletes when we were younger. So uh, we know that our son is going to be uh, probably a native digital big time. And he's going to live in that world of uh, just immersed in technology. So it is something challenging to be parents during this time, but it's also pretty rewarding just to see them grow and develop at the same time. No kidding. And I actually, I know we've only had, you know, one or two conversations before this, but when I saw that your degree was in sports medicine or, or something like that, it made me wonder, like, what, what sports did you play when mm-hmm. you were a kid or in college or whatnot? Yeah. Yeah. So my undergraduate is from Western Carolina in sport management, um, event and facility management more so specifically. Um, but as a kid, I was a multi-sport athlete and it was something that I was so impassioned about. And it was kind of my livelihood and it was a way for me to find those spaces of belonging because I was also a really odd kid. Um, you know, I, I didn't fit into a lot of the social norms that high school and middle school presented. But if you got me on a playing field, I fit in. I was that puzzle piece that was missing, and, and it was something that I really accelerated in. So for me, sports, uh, as a multi-sport athlete, it really guided where I wanted to be, even in college playing soccer, but then uh, my education. And then it's continued into what I do today and how I live and how I operate is just knowing that sports and um, sport participation is such a valuable uh, learning process for us as young individuals and what it can lead into as we grow older and uh, mature along the road. So you played soccer in college? Yeah. Did you play other sports as well? Uh, yeah, uh, so multi-sport athlete through high school, soccer, basketball, softball, um, and then uh, in college, I was, uh, went on to Western Carolina University to play soccer there. And that's so neat that, I mean, I know that you were, um, you had a time in your life that you were here in Western North Carolina, where I am, over at the YMCA mm. here, but mm-hmm. then, you know, you were in Kansas City, so, but it's interesting that, you know, um, Western is where my husband went to school, and it's, it, it's like, what, an hour away from me, so it, it's a small world, for sure, and you and I didn't even connect when you were here in, here in my area, we connected after you, you know, moved yeah. over yeah. to Kansas City, which is yeah. so cool. I think it's so awesome how our networks cross and, and continue to exchange. And we, you know, it's that it's a small world after all kind of idea and theme. It really is. I mean, we're really just uh, degrees of separation from each other and who we are and how we live. And we, if we really dug deeper into it, I imagine that our levels of connectivity, whether in this dimension or other dimensions, are probably very vibrant. So um, it really is something where we know each other much deeper than we're willing to uh, allow each other to get to know. You know, it's interesting you say that. I, um, I'm i part of a group, and uh, this it's become this community getting ready for next month where we're going to be, um, I'm going to be speaking with the TEDx Asheville. And the community that's around this, there's actually another speaker who her topic is interesting to me. She's going to be talking about the power of like play and creativity in childhood, just, just play in general and how it shapes us. And Mm -hmm. um, her organization works with uh, refugees and like children who are in war zones Mm -hmm. and just how they, they don't get a chance to play or develop their, you know, their mind and their creativity when they're younger. And then you know, essentially her work is helping to bring play back in because of the, you know, long lasting repercussions of uh, whatever the lack of play does, you know, when you, when you have that as a child. And it made me think, you know, things like sports and soccer and, you know, all these things that we take for granted when we're kids as, you know, as people who grew up in a very 
privileged country and a very privileged nation where we had access to sports and um, like yourself, you know, be able to, being able to play multiple sports. We sometimes, at least I don't realize and, and take, I take for granted the fact that I got access to those opportunities. So I'm really curious from your perspective as someone who's played a lot of different sports, like what's something that you learned or took from those those engagements, you know, soccer or whatever, ba- basketball, whatever sport you played that has helped you be able to be a more effective adult? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, sports have been the foundational component to who I am as an individual. They are the foundation. They truly give me that opportunity to uh, steer and lead and follow and um, cheer teammates on in ways that I learned through the game um, to, to the power of play. I mean, I think that it's so important that we think about this from the lens of our children are growing up so much more faster every single day. Um, look at you, Hannah, uh, CEO of your organization and you're uh, 22 or something like that, 23. You know, the CEOs at that age didn't come in such a vibrancy as what we see now. Our kids are growing up younger. And um, if they have those opportunities to play, I think it's so valuable. My son uh, has some friends and neighbors down the road and they're girls. Um, and I'm not into the gender normity of what this presents, but they were um, just doing some acting. They were building out a play, like a, a, a theatrical play. And he loved it, right? And so that got him off of the screen time for a couple hours. And it really gave him that that notion of understanding play, like you had mentioned. But then when we think about our immigrants, refugees, brothers and sisters who are built with so much trauma at such a young age, whether they're escaping genocide or, or finding a new home or trying to find water just to survive, um, that is that experience and that growing up uh, strongholds you very young. So inserting play at a later date, it's probably not as effective. There's a whole uh, timeline that they're advancing and skipping when uh, our immigrants and refugees are trying to find uh, their safe haven, their, their safe places. Um, but yes, uh, growing up in America, we are privileged with that. And if we have those opportunities, we have to continue to provide and, and, and give and, and ensure our youth have those uh, because we're, we're trying to see what our next generation is going to be for us because they will be the change makers in our world. And if we can insert play, it's going to develop them with some foundational skills. No kidding. No kidding. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's fascinating to see the, you know, I was thinking about this recently, like all of the psychology of what happens when you're younger that, you know, especially before age 20, that really develops the way you look at the world and how you lead and how you perceive pretty much every, every part of your life, whether mm-hmm. it's relationships or work or, or whatnot. And it's actually part of the reason I started this show, you know, as, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm young, I'm 24, just turned 24. And I have realized there's this chasm that exists between, you know, my generation and talking with folks from a, a different generation. And, um, it, it brought to mind that there's so many conversations that we, we have commonalities within. And then there's so many chasms where we just refuse to talk about things that get difficult or taboo or whatever the case might be. And it, you know, it comes to, I, I feel like my generation, like you said, is getting access to information a whole lot sooner because of the technology that we have. And now you find, and maybe your son has started doing this, even though he's nine, has has started forming opinions at such a young age about literally every topic under the sun. And I think that my generation and in even the next one, Generation Alpha, which your daughter would fit into, right? It's 60 months old, so it's anyone under age nine. Um, our generations deserve to be able to hear adults having better conversations with other adults and also with with kids. So I'm glad we can we can have these types of conversations. And it makes me this is an a question I've been meaning to ask you. And it's this topic of so you you were the executive director at the Y in Kansas mm-hmm. City, right? Mm-hmm. For how many years? 
Uh, three and a half years. Three and a half. Okay. So then, so now tell me, tell me what you're doing now yeah. with the, your firm. Yeah. So, um, for myself, it was a decision, a, a multifaceted decision that I had to come to and just taking well-being and health and, and family health into consideration and what my next steps would be. So I did resign from my position with the YMCA of Greater Kansas City uh, with full board support. Um, the board was extraordinary and they're just so kind and, and helping me on these next steps. Uh, but now it gave me the opportunity to really invest in the, the work that truly means the most to me. And that's equity work in particular for our youth. And um, when I do, do that and when I shape that, my consulting firm is called Vespa Equity Services. And it really takes a comprehensive approach that's a bit different than some equity consulting firms, um, racial equity, uh, gender equity, and, and age equity, all of those components are, are, you can see, are very vibrant in a lot of equity firms. But there's two other components that I really put a distinct focus on, and that's around animal equity and earth equity. I believe we have to have a holistic approach, and, and before we can really provide spaces that are safe and equitable for another person in, in, in knowing that we're wanting the best of belonging for everyone. We have to take care of our earth and our animals first. And um, I, I believe in my heart that until we become better stewards of those areas, we will continue to just postpone what true human equity looks like. Um, and that's something that I've been focusing on uh, as of the past uh, month. And it's actually going very well. So, Well, thank you for that. What, do you, what made you so passionate about this holistic look at equity? Mm -hmm. You know, you grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. I had a long time of, uh, uh, in Asheville, North Carolina as well. Um, but there's a lot of understanding behind what the importance is to our next generations and how they're going to live and what they're going to see. I can't imagine a world where my son and my daughter won't be able to climb the side of a mountaintop and, and just bask in the views and the pure air that just sits up there. Um, I, I can't imagine that for not to be available for my kids. Um in knowing how important it was for me in what we call forest therapy, um, you know, getting outside and, and being part and one with the earth is so important to me. But then animals as well. Um, my family, we come from a long line of animal lovers. We're all vegans and we all uh, believe that we can contribute to the well-being of others through that position. Um, so not only are we helping uh, sentient beings and uh, saving a life every single day that we live as vegans, but we also know and believe that uh, because we are vegans, we are helping our earth in our, um, our climate, our, our carbon footprint that we're uh, putting back in, but putting out there. So for me, having that holistic approach is something that really allows us to build a stronger lens of sustainability in knowing that it's just not one part. Uh, it is the entire piece for us to ensure that we're really equity fighters. That's really interesting. Your whole family was vegans. Uh, so how far does that go back? Uh, not, this is, uh, my mother is the first generation of that. And then my sister and I, my wife is, uh, we're growing up our daughter, vegan, our son, uh, vegetarian. Uh, we're working hard, very limited. Um, but at this age, we're allowing him to make choices. And I'm trying to uh, not pressure him. I'm trying my best to not uh, let him see or feel or think that I'm judging because I'm not. But I want to influence him. So uh, that's where we're at. I'm going to have to get some recipes from you then because I, so this is interesting. I'm not a vegan, but I find that when I eat completely plant-based food, or at least, you know, I, I don't eat a ton of meat. I would say probably more fish, you know, having, um, just a balanced diet in general, but I find that when I eat purely at least vegetarian, 
I feel so much better. Like it, it, it just feels fueling and energetic. Is, is that something you found too? Uh, you know, I've been in this position for years and years now. So there's other things that support my energy because, uh, but knowing that your, your straight protein and how you can truly gain that comes from the earth. It doesn't come from an animal. Uh, you're, you don't need that middle item. Um, it really is a game changer in, you know, take it one day at a time, but, um, it's true for us in that decision. It wasn't had anything to do with health reasons or anything of that nature, but more so just because we want to care and live for other beings. And that doesn't stop at the, the human being. It is the animal being and everything that has a, a heartbeat, the sentient life. Have you seen the video that um, Jubilee, which is a YouTube channel, they have you, well, first of all, are you, are you familiar with Jubilee? A little bit, but I'm not, I'm not following with you where you're going right now. That is fine. I, this is something a lot of Gen Zers watch on, on YouTube, but and, uh, it's very interesting. They bring on people who have different perspectives on whatever the topic is, whether it's, you know, flat earthers, they, they had a, they had an episode with flat earthers versus, you know, round earthers and scientists. Um, they had an episode with, oh gosh, what was it? Like atheists and Christians. Mm -hmm. They, but one of the episodes that I thought was really interesting was vegans and hunters. And it made me realize like they, they actually had a really interesting, intelligent and, and kind conversation about the different perspectives that each of them had. And one of the, uh, the women who was a hunter, she was talking about how in her, she, she lives in Texas on a ranch and essentially her family for years have been sustainably hunting the area in order to protect the, the native population of other species. And so anyway, what I thought was fascinating about this conversation is the the two of them came in expecting, or the two uh, groups of people came in expecting to completely butt heads, and you know, one is saying this is this is the way, the only way you can do it, and the other one saying this is the only way. And what they walked out of the conversation with is both of them, both groups realized that their goal was stewardship. Ultimately, you know, both of them had a goal of of stewardship of the environment. One of them did it by refraining from eating meat. And the other group did this by protecting this species and making sure that the, you know, every species could thrive in an area that was having to balance different populations along with humans. So it just, it brought me when I was watching this to this perspective of, wow, you know, we can have very different ways of looking at life doesn't matter what generation we're coming from or where we live, um, but that we can come, we can find these commonalities, right? <laughs> between between every, literally every topic um, that exists under the sun. So have you found yourself in positions where you've, you've encountered a hunter and had, had to have that conversation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I have this conversation almost, almost daily. And um, I think, the only thing that I would say with that is we have to be very careful on how we display and um, bring our education to our littles. Um, the things that I get challenged with is, uh, um, you know, a lot of hunters bring their kids along. Um, and the kid is exposed to having to make some very hard decisions with the essential uh, end of it is killing something, right? And, and to me, that's a very hard decision and exposure for a child. We talk about uh, uh, earlier how we've got some war-torn war countries where children are having to, um, they're being placed into militia areas and they're actually fighting for somebody or trying to kill for somebody. And I think that as we talk about how we can continue to preserve a child and allow them to live, uh, there's, there's times and places for everything. But I think um, it, it's one of those things where uh, I really hope that we can think about how this impacts imprints, creates some um, some 
psychological uh, impression on our children. And I have those conversations very often. And I think that if we can speak in just a very uh, calm and um, experienced position and with uh, the opportunity to share that space, we can continue to learn from each other. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Do you think that there's like speaking of just the influences on childhood and, and development and, and all those things. And I, I had no idea the conversation would go this route, but I'm so glad we're taking this <laughs> because it's a needed a needed discussion. What do you think the influence of, you know, um, violence that is so prominent on screen and in, you know, on Netflix and movies, like, what do you think that has a similar effect on children? Like what you were just talking about with hunting or what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I do believe that. I think when you see things, uh, you tend to try and mimic things. And I, I believe our children are highly exposed uh, to what it looks like on um, GTA, Grand Theft Auto, and, and thinking about how kids are stealing vehicles or, or killing a bystander on the street. Um, those are negative effects. So I know that they have these uh, recommended ages for the participation in a lot of those things. And my wife and I do uh, press on that, you know, is this age appropriate for Kellen? But then you even think about it. Um, you got a lot of adults that are, are working through that. Um, I remember as a kid, there was a game that I used to play. It was called Area 51. So this is way before your time, Hannah. Um, but Area 51 was uh, in the arcades, which was, again, way before your time. And uh, <laughs> we were in the mall, and we would go to the arcades, and we would play. And um, I would play on that game and drop a, you know, five bucks or whatever. But it was a gun, and it was shooting aliens. Uh so the concept is there, and I think that I've grown up okay. I don't have that in me. Um, but I think at the same time, there are some other psychological traumas that a lot of our youth are going through where if this is compacted with that type of exposure, it could lead to long-term distress. It's very interesting. I I want to look at the research again around this about you know, what, what the influences of all of these, all the influences we're bringing onto our children and how they've impacted us long-term. It seems like the last time I looked into the research specifically of, for example, video game violence on actual violence, they were finding there were actually fewer correlations than we had initially supposed. So it's, it's just, I'm very fascinated by that sort of research because it is interesting. And, um, just to see, you know, what the impact is, if there's direct correlations. And my husband and I talk about this all the time because he's a statistician and he loves running all of the statistics behind Mm -hmm. the data and seeing if, you know, what we're being told is actually accurate or true. And, and this was a a discussion we were having a few weeks ago. So anyway, it's this, this whole conversation has prompted me to go look and do my research. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for me as a kid, I was growing up watching the NBA and college basketball go hard heels, right? So that's what I was growing up on, and it influenced everything that I did. I was a huge Michael Jordan fan, and he's displayed everywhere, and influenced me to the point where I, I was just hungry to play basketball. That's all I wanted to do, right? So that's how it impressioned me. Now let's put uh, a level of gun violence on our kids, you know, that, that, that could be uh, a similar impact that we can, but the data is there. I also think that it, the, the notion that I mentioned earlier, when it's compacted with other levels of trauma. Uh, so when you have this video game that um, is, is just gun violence or whatever it may be, but it's compacted with maybe home trauma or even their school trauma, um, there's a lot of different levels of that. When you see that, I think that it could create um, something by design that no one is aware of. We Yes, I completely agree. I think we'll have yet to see 
what the what the full effects of all of that is as our world keeps developing and and all of these things. Um, but that is a perfect uh, segue into this this idea that I wanted to ask you about coming from your background with nonprofits, because this is a world that I, I've never been in myself, the, the world of nonprofits. And mm-hmm. you've spent pretty much your whole career in that. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. My entire professional career is internal or in, in nonprofit. Gotcha. So thinking about this idea of, you know, the influences that, um, just the world can have on children and how we're raised and how, and how we grow up. I'm really curious from your perspective in the nonprofit space. And, you know, the YMCA was an organization when I was much younger, I remember going to the Y with my parents and we would go, you know, swimming and we would take classes and all these things. And, and as I got, I guess it was about maybe 10 or 11 or whatnot. Um, I, I started noticing that, you know, I, I wasn't actively involved with the Y let's just say. So, um, I had friends who were, you know, working in nonprofits or for the Y as well. And they would, you know, tell me these stories of all the different things that happened in the nonprofit space versus the for-profit space, which is where I was, you know, my first corporate job was in the, in a for-profit family owned business. So I'm really curious in the nonprofit space, what do you, what, what did you see were some of the top challenges with native digital? So people under age 30 from Gen Z on the employment side, like what were some of the the things that you may have seen that I didn't see in the for-profit side in terms of like uh, recruiting or retention issues? Like what, what does that look like in the nonprofit space? Yeah, I think the nonprofit space is a bit behind on what uh, tech and the uh, ability to really advance um, those agencies forward. Uh, I I can tell you that nonprofits live off of case management software, and it's a very arduous uh, type of programming. But also the challenge with nonprofits is that I have gone through in my experience, please note my experience, um, is the vast amount of different softwares that create more complexities and the lack of ability for learning curves on that. So when we talk about it with this next generation, when we're hiring 35 and youngers at our, our YMCA's or something, and they're going through, let's say, our member software system, they're like, man, this thing is really bad. This is should not take this long. Why are we, why can we look at a different software system? I can't tell you how many times that we would get that type of response. Um, and there are softwares out there that uh, really are much more up to date and stuff, but it is a financial burden at the same time too. So if there's a system that's in and we're hiring these native digitals, as you, you call, um, and they're operating in this a little bit of an archaic system, archaic software. It, it poses challenges um, because it, the the and it's not even a learning curve, but a lack of interest to learn such a complex system. It, it's almost like let's simplify it, and I totally agree with it. But there's a it's a sound financial investment. That's one of my observations I've seen. Interesting. Where, where do you think the lack of interest, as you called it, like where, where does that originate? Where does the, the lack of change or progress, where is that starting in the organization? Uh, well, I'm seeing it from the new hires that younger generation has a lack of interest in really complex systems. Um, you know, I, I think that systems can be easier, more um, in tune, could be better aligned instead of being broken off into five different six systems and having five different logins in a part-time position, it's just a bit asinine, right? So how we can get that to where it's a little bit more collective and speaking with each other. Uh, but also I look at a lot, some of these younger individuals that we've hired, they're coming in and they're like, have you ever tried this? Or you know, functions around scheduling and things of that nature, they just bring a sense of new flavor, a sense of new opportunity 
Um, and the, that lack of interest piece comes from them because of the complexity of archaic systems. But the interest also is reflected in wanting to see change and improvement. So what, in, in at least your experience, when you had, say, a native digital, someone under 30, come and start working at the company, did you find that even just that system challenge, like having too many logins, having too many, too much clunkiness, as we would put it, was that leading to turnover? Or did you find that they were resilient enough to stick around and try to see the change through? Yeah, I don't think it led to turnover, but I think it led to a, a slower learning curve. But I would also say that um, when you look at it from that lens, the, the older generations that we were hiring, their learning curve was three, four times longer, right? So even though the complexity of the system was there, uh, we still had uh, a quicker learning curve or adaptation and adoption of the system by our younger generation. Um, I think overall it was just our, our turnover. I, I would say, and I'm a fighter for this, but it has to do with pay and um, finding the why. What is, not the YMCA, but the why, the W-H-Y, and why you're doing this work and purpose. And I think if we can build that. We had great retention where I was at. We saw um, every night when I was at the YMCA, I wrote this down somewhere. I had three 17-year-olds closing down my facility, right? A 100,000 square foot center and three 17-year-olds were closing it down. It was unbelievable, and I entrusted in them and believed in them. And to that effect, um, they found their purpose. They found their community. They enjoyed each other, right? And I think that they're going to be in it for a long haul. One individual, um, she she saw the why as like her career path. So she was on this career ladder. We were able to move her up in a not in a supervisory position, but maybe in a lead position. And she was in, enthralled with herself, loved it. How do we continue to develop those individuals as a career path? But um, yeah, systems and uh, the turnover, I think had to do with more the pay and really helping people find their why. No, absolutely. It, I, I actually had an interview with, with a wonderful business owner named Jamie J recently. And he and I were having this conversation about empowering young people, not just with their why, but also just the idea of empowering a young person to be the one to take on responsibilities that many organizations for years wouldn't have given to someone unless they had, you know, five years of tenure or whatever the case might be. And I love that fact that three 17 year olds were closing up the building because mm -hmm. It, and I don't know if this was your experience um, specifically, but I've noticed in mine and with the leaders I work with who are the most forward thinking. So Jamie's case, for example, his business is entirely remote. All of his staff are in the Philippines and Haiti and South Africa. They work from every location except for the U.S. And he'll have 17, 18 year olds running corporate meetings you know, it's not just the 35 and 40 year olds running these meetings. It's, it's the brand new, new hires, these new young, fresh faces who he said, he essentially gives them this power to say, you, you have something to say, you have a bright voice to add. And I, I mean, you would not believe how many people I speak with who, or maybe you would, you would believe, but the pe number of people I speak with who say, how could you put someone that young in charge of something, such a big responsibility? And it's amazing to me how many leaders continue struggling with that idea. So what, what would you say to someone, say they're, you know, 50, 55, 60, who says you can't put a 17 year old in charge of that? Yeah, I, I think that that's wild to me. Um, one of my proudest moments as an executive was having uh, this young youth board member uh, she was part of my board. She uh, started off as an intern with the Y, and then I just saw so much potential in her. And I said, hey, I would love to invite you to be that voice at the table. So at 18 and 19, she's a board member of a YMCA, right? And she 
was exceptional and still is exceptional. And one of my biggest highlights was when I did a fireside chat with her in front of several hundreds of people around immigrant and refugee resettlement and talking uh, to her because she is from Asian descent and we had discussions around Asian hate and uh, around gender equity and she articulated such an exceptional experience. The nuggets of wisdom that that group of people walked away with from a 19 year old, right? Give credit where credit is due. And, and she, she ran that show. And for a 50, 55 year old, whoever um, is considering this, there's really not a mistake that can happen out of this. This is another step in the journey of making sure that we're inclusive in our actions and bringing all voices around the table. It's essential. Um, but I think that if you're not willing to give it a try, you're excluding a, a very important part of our population. Now, let me be the voice of the 55-year-old. How in the world did you find an 18-year-old with that much potential? Yeah. So I think that it was me getting out there, uh, working with several different uh, school systems and their internship programs. And uh, we had probably 10 different interns come through my YMCA in the first year. Justine stood out. So it was an exposure level. It was an effort on my behalf to really allow such spaces to be able to see individuals thrive. And that is the product that came out of it. So I think when we put forth a little bit of effort, because it wasn't hard, it's not challenging to welcome interns in, to welcome younger staff in, um, but it, it definitely uh, showed its value. And Justine, is she's a friend today, um, and I'm so proud of her. So when you say you worked with school systems and intern programs, how how were you guys partnering with schools and what did that what did the programming look like to get them involved with the why yeah so partnering with the schools is essential especially within the ymca um after school hours around four o'clock you would see a huge almost like a herd of youth coming over to the ymca because that's their safe place after hours uh but having um, administration uh, on my shortlist phone calls. They're on my speed dial. If uh, something was to go down and I need to talk to a coach or uh, a school counselor or something of that nature, it's building that relationship with the school and knowing that we've got Tommy here and we want to see him excel. Uh, he's gotten in a little bit of trouble today, but it's nothing we can't handle. Um, but let's work on this together and then getting, making sure parents are engaged and involved as well. Um, so working with schools, as far as programs, uh, what you'll see here in Missouri, especially here in Kansas City, the school systems have an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of programs that they're serving their kids with. Um, Northland CAPS programs is a highlight of it. And um, it's really just making sure that we are a um, unit of service that they can access when that time comes. Having projects, uh, let's highlight Justine a little bit further. Uh, a couple of years ago, we identified a huge food insecurity here in Kansas City. 21% <clears throat> of our membership was food insecure. Um, and getting healthy choices into their hands was a challenge. <clears throat> so one thing that we decided to do was, <clears throat> excuse me, was to um, become our own supplier of healthy food choices, um, fruits and vegetables. And Justine, as our intern, spearheaded this project and designed an urban farm, a quarter acre farm inside the city limits, and something that is extremely unique in urban areas. So um, providing that opportunity, programs very similar to that. Uh, technology is critical. So we designed a 1,300 square foot technology space for our youth to have access to. This was has been critical during the pandemic. Um, and it gave kids a safe space to learn, grow, and explore in a very peer-to-peer -peer environment. These are some of the programs that we did 
but it really is endless. If there's something, an opportunity there, there the engagement of our youth is really uh, so important and so valuable. So did you just say, so remind me that the Justine, is she the 18 year old who's on the board? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're telling me that an 18 year old mm-hmm. took the learnings and the, the fact that 21% of your members were food insecure and she's the one who came up with an idea to build this, this, to essentially create a food supply and have this quarter acre farm. And le- she led that whole project. She led it and she designed the layout of the farm, greenhouse, raised beds, orchard trees, um, really just an exceptional. Her, her goal, um, she's going to school here, is to be an engineer. So she's going to school for that. And she, we're so excited out of the luncheon we had where she spoke in front of several hundreds of people. She was able to get a paid internship with a local uh, engineering firm. So she's on the right track. And it's just really, I, I believe it to my core when I say opening up doors for our youth and giving them opportunities. I love this perspective because there are so many organizations who don't work as much with youth who forget this key connection to the power that youth can bring, right? I mean, it, it seems it seems completely intuitive to you and I because we work with organizations and just as human beings who are so connected with youth and know, you know, I've watched children 10, 11, 12 years old commit to fundraising for projects that they earned, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to put toward a cause or to start a business that helped with a cause. And so... Here's here's the question that I, I get all the time, but I'm really curious to hear your answer. So if you're an organization that does not have this connection to youth and you're, say you're, I don't know, um, a law firm, a bank, you're, you're in a different sphere and you're typically working with employees who come to you maybe at the earliest age 20, 2021, when they're in their internship for their bachelor's degree. How, how do you even connect with youth or, or make sure that you've got a presence with youth so that you can actually hire some of this great talent that's already getting snapped up by organizations like, like the Y or, you know, other programs that are much more youth focused or have a more youth centric culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think what I hear you saying, Hannah, is how can maybe non-traditional, uh, non-youth serving organizations engage our younger market in hiring? Yeah. How, how can they get in front of those sort of, mm-hmm. how can they get in front of the best and brightest high schoolers yeah. so they it, can actually, you know, grow them up in their culture? Yeah. It's so wild. Um, I went to a internship uh, resume building fair the other day. And I was one of the mentors there that was helping high schoolers build their resumes. And I asked, I had a table of like six high schoolers with me and I asked them, what are they going into? And two out of the six said real estate. And I thought when I was 17, I had no thought, interest, or even idea of becoming a real estate agent, commercial or residential, right? And these two, you could tell they've been watching a million dollar listing or whatever you want to call it, but they were into it. And I think about that. So real estate, let's just tap into it a little bit more. You've got two kiddos there, 17 year old. They've got a lot of swagger in them. I bet that they can play, they can do that game um, by giving those internship opportunities. Now let's get a little bit more streamlined um, and talk about like financial banking and things of that nature. I think that to have that exposure for youth to be able to see that um, agencies, organizations have to be involved in their communities. Uh, I was sitting at that table representing the YMCA. Uh, there was five other tables there that one of them could have been from the banking industry. But making that effort and taking that little bit of initiative to expose your agency to the community, to our youth, and giving them an opportunity to potentially see a career path that they didn't imagine before. Um, I think the bottom line with all of it is, though, it's leadership. It's somebody that's willing to commit that time to our kiddos. I'm so glad you brought this up because, well, two things. 
we'll touch on the real estate in a second because this is a very interesting topic. But so you you mentioned you're in person or at this moment, you were in person at some sort of career job application resume writing fair, right? Mm-hmm. Like you were you were in person at a table. So this is what's fascinating to me. Most organizations that I speak with are heavily ledgering, uh, leveraging job boards and social media to try to recruit staff, right? Because millennials, if you look at the data, millennials, so anyone between age 26 to age 40, were very, very heavily looking at job boards for their next position, right? You have Gen Z come along as native digitals. And you look at the statistics, there was a study done by Yellow last year, and their research firm, the research division, polled thousands of Gen Zers. Guess where the second most looked at place was for jobs for Gen Z? Hmm. Like we're like we're most looking. So number one, this is this shocks a lot of people. Number one, 62% of Gen Z is just going to friends and family to find their job. You would think that'd be social media, right? Like you would yeah. think that's prime. No, that the top area we're looking for jobs is from our friends and family because we're going to trust recommendations more than so, an ad we see on social media. But the second most common sources for our jobs were in-person career fairs. Hmm. It, that is just like, no, nobody thinks that way. If you don't look at the data, you'd think all those Gen Zers on their cell phones all the time are looking at social media, but we're not. That is not mm-hmm. the place that we're looking. Only 31% of Gen Z says we we find our jobs through th- social media. So the learning here for me, and, and I'm so glad, again, you brought this up because if you're at an, if you are involved in your community, it doesn't matter what size business that you are, you're, you're consistently going to be more Um, impactful with these youth who are, you're right, deciding careers when they're 16, 17. They're not deciding them when they're in college anymore. They're deciding them so much younger. So I just think like if, if every organization could hear what you just said about being involved in your community, again, this is not just for like small businesses. This is for for medium-sized businesses and even large companies that want to have that more native footprint with their community, getting involved with actual in-person events is really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did want to highlight the second thing that you just said, which is this idea of real estate. I So as a Gen Zer myself, I'm on TikTok all the time, just scrolling through videos. And there's a guy named Daniel Isles, and he is 21. And he, as a 21-year-old, he has just purchased, I believe it's his 10th investment property, which is absolutely crazy. So he's he's a real estate investor. He's 22. And all, all these kids are looking at him and going, wow, that's, you know, that's who I want to be. Yeah. So anyway, it just, it reminds me like the world is continuing to shift. It doesn't shock me because I'm a part of it. But to most generations, that idea is is astounding. Um, I, I've loved having this conversation, Tina, and I'm so glad we've gone all over the place and, and talked about what's important to you as well. Um, so please come back and I, I want to get to know you even better because it's, it's awesome to have someone on with a, this, these perspectives that are, you know, vastly different from even my own in some cases, you know, and how, and how I grew up. So I appreciate you bringing such diversity of thought and, um, just this idea that sometimes, Uh, counterintuitive to the way a lot of the world works nowadays. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate it too. And you know, anything I can do, just let me know. I really appreciate your work and how you're steering that forward. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.